0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last, and I'm glad to be back on the air. But then again, I don't ever recall a time when I wasn't glad to be back on the air. I just know that when I go at least maybe three or four days um, from when I've podcasted last to coming back on the air, I just find it to be um, a great relief. Uh, Why do I... Say great relief well for one um i'm I'm back on the air uh continuing the story, but two, for those of you who are who are waiting for the next uh round of information to come your way, you're beginning to wonder uh when is when is kirk gonna come on the air next? when is he gonna tell us uh the most uh, fundamental information because we're itching to learn more, and that's what um I'm here to do. I'm here to educate you all on the topics that I've uh, learned about uh, from, a his, from a historical matter, but the topics that can be uh, broadened. In other words, my job is to give you all as good of a story as there is, but a story that can go far beyond uh, what the textbooks told us from years past, regardless of how old we are. But I think it is fair to say that um, that books... Uh, that have been written about uh, various events in more recent years have shed new light on what the textbooks uh, told us uh, from years past about um, such events. So, in this uh, podcast uh, topic, to the Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels, who challenged America's newfound sovereignty. For this uh, podcast uh, segment, we're going to learn... We're going to learn exactly um, when Washington's uh, administration first learned about what happened along the forks of the Ohio. We're also going to learn about who Pennsylvania's governor was, and that is uh, an important matter because uh, just because one's a a governor, it might not always mean that the governor is going to always be on the same terms as the president, given the uh, severity of the situation at hand. We're also going to learn about uh, what steps Washington and his cabinet have to begin taking to ensure that the uh, young republic, or America's young republic, will survive, not just uh, for the short term, but for long term. So isn't it fair to say that since Washington became president in 1789, there's been one challenge after another? But the biggest challenge now lies ahead in terms of maintaining America's um, republic. After all, it does appear that there are those along the frontier who are wanting to take up arms against the republic. All because they don't like this whiskey tax. All because of the fact that they feel that they are being left behind. The, the big guys are the ones running the show and forcing the little guys um, out of competition. Uh, those on the frontier just feel as though they're not being valued. It seems like there is a never-ending struggle, and Washington now has to wonder what can be done to get these people out on the frontier to submit their allegiance to the government. Well, let's find out. Well, our first leadoff question for this podcast segment is the following When did Washington's administration first learn about what happened along the forks of the Ohio regarding the burning of Bower Hill, General Neville's estate? Washington's administration, folks, did not learn about the burning. Of uh, General Neville's estate until July 25th, 1794, just shy of uh, 10 days after the event first took place. And we got to remember we don't have cell phones, we don't have breaking news alerts. We have to remember the capitals in Philadelphia and along the frontier we're talking about you know obviously western Pennsylvania being close to the Ohio line as well as what we now know as uh present day West Virginia and uh western Maryland so the news is not going to get to Philadelphia overnight there's no such thing as federal express we could be looking at best maybe a week or just shut, or just over a week we could be looking at 7 to 10 days or just or, or even more than 10 days before the news can get to Philadelphia, but if uh, this event happened, that is the burning at uh, Bower Hill, which happened between July 15th and 16th, it is fair to say that it did take about 10 days for the news to get to Philadelphia. 10 days. Think about how much has happened in that time. Of course, for us, you know, news that, you know, nowadays when news comes to us that's Uh, you know, 10 days old, or if we're still learning about something that happened 10 days ago, that's going to seem old to us. But we also have to keep in mind that in 1794, receiving news that that was 10 days old was a big deal because you didn't know anything about the matter until the actual day that you got the news. So you had something to talk about, even if it was just over a week old. And it is a big deal for the Washington administration. So, in the midst of getting this news, Washington is very, very alarmed. So is Alexander Hamilton. They now know that it's time to resume those strategies that had been brought up uh, during the spring regarding law and order in western Pennsylvania. Preserving and maintaining law and order, you'd think, would be an easy task. But even in the early days of America's Republic, maintaining law and order, was not as simple as what we've probably been led to believe for a long period of time. Now, there is some uh, important news here, and that Congress ended its session just before the burning of General Neville's estate. The good news with regards to this is that Prior to General Neville's estate being burned, Congress had enough time to pass new tax enforcement law, or rather to pass a new tax enforcement law. Okay, that's good, but what's even better is that Washington now had more time on his side where assembling federal troops could be achieved... But in order for this to be achieved, he had to get certification from a Supreme Court Justice, or rather, I should say, a, a United States Supreme Court Justice, confirming that federal law enforcement behind collecting the whiskey tax had indeed failed at the Forks of the Ohio. So, in other words, getting certifications like getting an injunction, okay? In other words, you know... How do I say it? We've uh, tried other means of um, collecting um, this tax, and it's failed, but now we are given the broad power of being able to use actual law enforcement from, uh, from a bigger level than just sending in the, the uh, agents. We now are going to be able to have the authority to send in an army, an army that could uh, perhaps quash this potential uprising once and for all. Uh, who is James Wilson? Some of you may uh, know who James Wilson is, I don't know how many of you do. Though, For those of you who were with me when we talked about signing their uh, lives away and signing their uh, rights away, you know, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, including the United States Constitution. I can't remember if, uh, James Wilson's name, or rather if I had mentioned James Wilson's name to any of you all per those uh, podcast uh, topic discussions. What I can tell you is that James Wilson was a prominent man of political importance in Pennsylvania. He was one of six uh, men whom signed both the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. in other words, only uh, six uh, signers had signed were holdovers from the Declaration Declaration of Independence who still were alive in 1787 to sign the United States Constitution. James Wilson was one of them. Uh, Robert Morris was another. Benjamin Franklin was another. George Clymer was another. Uh, you had. Uh, I'm trying to think. that Those four, I know, came from um, Pennsylvania, and then you had uh, Roger Sherman of uh, Connecticut. I can't forget uh, Roger Sherman, and uh, eventually the sixth person is going to uh, come up here uh, sooner or later, uh, so I might need uh, a few minutes, but anyways, there, are, there were um, six uh, men whom uh, signed uh, whom had signed the Declaration of Independence whom went on to uh, sign the uh, United States uh, Constitution as a matter of fact I, I want to say uh, the gentleman from Delaware being George Reed yes it was George Reed from Delaware whom signed whom was a signer of the Declaration of Independence who also went on to sign the United States Constitution so I um, I'm saved by the bell there folks so James Wilson uh, Yes, he's a very prominent uh, man of political impor- of political importance. He was also a close friend to fellow ally Robert Morris, which uh, should not come as any surprise. But by 1794, during the midst of the crisis along the Pennsylvania frontier, it just so happened to be James Wilson, who was the one that served. He served as a Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I'm beginning to wonder if maybe, just maybe, James Wilson could be that justice who might be the one to sign the certification that President Washington is needing. I have a good feeling we might find that out here shortly, folks. I should also mention about James Wilson that he was a, a land speculator. I've So was uh, Robert Morris, a handful of other um men whom signed the constitution and perhaps even with the declaration of independence we had a lot of men whom were very big into the land speculation deals uh, that went out into the uh, western territories like that we know of as western pennsylvania uh, tennessee kentucky and into that northwest territory with ohio uh, indiana illinois michigan wisconsin So, yes, they had the the means of uh, acquiring land, but, of course, when these land uh, deals didn't go well, there was far more busts than booms. Now, like Robert Morris, uh, James Wilson himself was a staunch supporter of creditors' needs and rights. And pay very careful attention here, folks. August 4th, 1794... United States Supreme Court Justice James Wilson certified the necessary documentation brought before him by Alexander Hamilton in approving the motion for dispatching Federal Troops West. So we have Justice James Wilson to thank for approving the motion. If it hadn't been for James Wilson, this crisis probably would have gotten far more out of hand than what it's currently showing. I mean, yes, the burning of Bower Hill, General Neville's estate, that's bad enough, but I just have a strong hunch that if if the United States Supreme Court had turned down Alexander Hamilton and George Washington's um, certification request for the need of um, bringing federal troops in... That would have been a huge blow to the executive branch and really, in a sense, to uh, America's young republic in terms of uh, maintaining not just law and order, but a sense of uh, national security on the domestic front. Who was Pennsylvania's governor in the midst of the western Pennsylvania frontier uprising? His name was Thomas Mifflin. Thomas Mifflin was a signer of the United States Constitution. But Thomas Mifflin has a real checkered past. He's he's liked by some, but he's not liked by everybody. But it's probably fair to say that, you know, it's fair to say that, even, you know, as we know in today's time, not everyone likes each other in Congress, more so now than probably, say, 40 years ago. You know, there was a time when members of Congress could learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. I think that... Um, Concept uh, has waved, sadly waved bye bye now. Uh, I'm not trying to get political, folks, but um, but that's unfortunately uh, the way it's become in Washington. Um, there's a lot of partisanship, a lot of um, a lot of toxic. Uh, it's just not good. But again, I'm not trying to be political, but uh, but but with all that's going on in the world and what we see in the news, it, it just doesn't sound very good, and I'm just being honest. But nonetheless, even in the early days of America's uh, republic, it is fair to say that there were politicians who did not like each other. And of course, for George Washington, that would be seen as a a violation of uh, perhaps of what his most famous um, book, one of his famous books uh, during his time that that he wrote, was uh, The Rules of Civility. So Thomas Mifflin is not a Federalist. So if he's not a Federalist, what is he? An Anti-Federalist. If Thomas Mifflin is not allies with Alexander Hamilton or George Washington, then whom would he be an ally of? Thomas Jefferson. Okay, Thomas Jefferson was the former Secretary of State. He stepped down back at the end of 1793. So for Thomas Mifflin, though, he has been an enemy of George Washington's since the days of the American Revolution. I wish I had more time to talk about that, but that would have to be for another uh, podcast topic. But if you wanted to learn more about why uh, Thomas Mifflin was uh, enemies with Washington, I strongly recommend looking that up uh, online. August 2nd of 1794, President Washington and his cabinet met with Governor Mifflin and other Pennsylvania officials. I would like to say that the meeting was a good one, but it wasn't. Washington's argument wasn't so much about non-compliance with a tax law. Well, yes, that was part of the argument. But failure to comply with this tax law was not a violation of state law. It's a, it's a violation of federal law. The Pennsylvania officials, led by Governor Mifflin, but but most notably the Pennsylvania officials, I should say, they held that Governor Mifflin would have to go before the Pennsylvania legislature in getting approval to call out militia. So, in other words, Governor Mifflin is very, very skeptical of George Washington's power. It's almost as if he resents the guy, and obviously he has resented him for some time. You'd think that Governor Mifflin, in a time of crisis would actually be a little bit smarter and perhaps a little bit more considerate to put aside old feelings from years past and focus on the present and with what's a little bit more relevant. No, it doesn't always work out that way. So now we can say that at this moment that Washington is stuck between a rock and a hard place. The bigger question is, is how long will he remain in between a rock and a hard place? Something tells me that some things are going to change. Let's find out. August 5th, 1794, Alexander Hamilton brought to... Rather, I should say Alexander Hamilton brought about an official report per Washington's request for the utmost essential reasons. These utmost essential reasons stated in in the report behind why federal troops were required to go into western Pennsylvania. Hamilton focused his views, or rather focused from the report, views on rebel violence from a militaristic perspective versus a criminal one, given the frontier region's population was looked upon as a a whole or an entire entity versus random suspects. So in other words, Alexander Hamilton's not interested in pointing out random people. He's he's more concerned about what this uh what the whole entire region uh has represented given that he pretty much sees 99.9% of the population there as of uh, those whom are uh, promoting uh, violence from a militaristic perspective. In other words, you know, there's not any one particular group of people who are engaging in individual criminal activities, but he knows based upon the reports presented to him that he's given to Washington that this is a, uh, a grave matter that does require national security on the domestic front. Alexander Hamilton saw more than just opposition to a whiskey tax. He viewed people along the frontier as those whom demonstrated hatred towards the United States, which could be attributed to the two Pittsburgh conventions where mass complaints about the United States government went beyond just a whiskey tax. Hamilton referred to a resolution from a second anti-tax convention at Pittsburgh where radicals advocated the convention at, where radicals advocated using and this is in quotation, folks "all legal means to obstruct the execution of the law." What do you think that could mean? All legal means to obstruct the execution of the, of the law? Well, when you're obstructing, you're preventing the passage of a law. You're preventing the passage of something going through that's relevant. So, if you're going to use every legal mean there is possible to prevent the execution of a federal law, that's probably going to also mean using violence. It could also mean um, trying to trying to uh, overtake a federal court or even a county court, where proper business cannot be conducted. Not just can't be conducted, but perhaps it, it won't be conducted for a period of time. This is where, um, you know, extremism is going to get at its worst. You know, it's one thing for, you know, one or two people to disagree over something. but When you start getting mass people disagreeing over something and not wanting to come to any means of resolution, then you do have more than just one red flag at stake. But it's one thing to disagree about a policy. But failure in complying to a federal law such as whiskey tax was seen as harmful to America's young republic. How so? Well, under a republic, do people vote for legislators? Yes, they do now we should keep in mind in the 18th century do people whom have the right to vote and of course in the 18th century uh, people whom are voting is not the same as we know it today i mean i still find it hard to believe it was 102 years ago that women were finally given the right to vote but of course we must remember too that wyoming was actually the first state where women were allowed to vote But it wasn't until 1920 that uh, Congress passed uh, the amendment allowing women full rights to vote. So it would be fair to say that in the 18th century, or rather, um, 18th century, but going, uh, well, we haven't made it into the 19th century yet, but in the 18th century, the only uh, people whom are allowed to vote are white males. Now, of course, uh, the criteria has changed, in signif- pretty much all the states had changed significantly since the time the American Revolution ended. But, um, but in the 18th century, uh, those whom are allowed to vote are uh, white men, and they are voting uh, for, for those whom are serving them in the House of Representatives. Our U.S. Senators, until 1913, will be um, elected by uh, members of the state legislature um, who will be uh, electing uh, U.S. Senators. So, a lot of things um, are still in store for change, but um, but many of these uh, changes, most notably direct election of U.S. Senators, won't happen until 1913. So, People under a, rep- a republic vote for legislators. Now, in the 18th century, it was uh, House of Representatives, but the only people whom have the power to repeal a law are those elected to serve people below whom voted them into office, okay? Those elected to serve the people are the legislators, being the House members of the House of Representatives and uh, the senators, They have the power to repeal a law. So in other words, everyday ordinary people, yes, they can voice their dissent, they can voice their opposition, but they do not have the power to repeal a law. They can encourage their legislators, their their representatives or their senators to vote in opposition of something. They can encourage them to do whatever it takes to repeal a law, but everyday people being represented below do not have the authority to do that. Now, who had replaced Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State after December 1793 came to an end? He was replaced by another uh, Virginian. How about Edmund Randolph? just so happens that Edmund Randolph was the nephew of, the most, of one of the most famous of Randolphs, being uh, Peyton Randolph. Peyton Randolph uh, was Virginia's Speaker of the House of Burgesses for an extended period of time uh, before the American Revolution uh, went into full swing. Peyton Randolph was right up there with George Wythe, uh, George Washington, just to name a few of uh, many uh, prominent Virginians whom served in the uh, House of Burgesses. But uh, Peyton Randolph uh, was President of the uh, Continental Congress, up until his untimely death in 1775 and when he passed away that opened the door for John Hancock to become the new uh, president of the Continental Congress. Had Peyton Randolph not died, it would have been his big signature on the Declaration of Independence and not John Hancock's. John Hancock still would have been a signer, it's just that a a Virginian's uh, signature would have been the biggest of them being that of Peyton Randolph's, but but it turned out to be uh John Hancock. Now, um, Edmund Randolph is also um a relative of Thomas Jefferson's. Just like Peyton uh Peyton Randolph and Thomas Jefferson were cousins. Uh Jefferson and um Edmund and, and Edmund Randolph are are related. Uh Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph. So if any of you were just curious to know how Jefferson how Thomas Jefferson was related to the Randolph family, uh, Jefferson's mother was uh, Jane Randolph, and uh, Jefferson's father being Peter Jefferson, a well-to-do surveyor. Uh, the home that Jefferson was uh, born at was uh, Shadwell. The home doesn't exist anymore with the exception of the most uh, basic uh, foundation um, that's pr- that was left. Shadwell, sadly, um, burned to the ground in the early 1770s. Uh, about three or four years, maybe before Jefferson signed the Declaration of Independence, and he lost a great deal of his uh, personal belongings. But long story short of it, Shadwell, uh, Peter Jefferson um, named Shadwell in honor of where Jefferson's mother um, was born in England. Uh, she was born at a, um, in a parish in England known as Shadwell. So in case any of you are wondering how Shadwell came about, you can uh, think of uh, England in that uh, connection. So, and I also should point out that uh, Thomas Jefferson is cousins with John Marshall. John Marshall's mother was a Randolph, and it just so happens that Thomas Jefferson's mother and John Marshall's mother were sisters. So, these uh, connections are quite powerful, even from within the family, to say the least. Now, Edmund Randolph is no stranger to the national uh, level. He was uh, present in Philadelphia At the Constitutional Convention, but did not sign the Constitution. He was one of a handful of uh, signers who did not sign it because there was no Bill of Rights guaranteed. Well, you know, the the, the irony to it was that uh, there were those in Philadelphia who said that, you know, we couldn't put everything into the Constitution right away, but with regards to a Bill of Rights, We could uh, bring that up in the foreseeable future after the states ratify the document, and what do you know? Uh, In 1791, uh, just a few years after the Constitution uh, would be ratified by the states, we do get the most uh, fundamental um, amendments, being the first ten amendments, uh, being our Bill of Rights. So Edmund Randolph was alive to be able to see a Bill of Rights be enacted. It just didn't happen in 1787 like he would have wanted it to. Uh, But Edmund Randolph is not a stranger to national politics. Uh, He held the post of U.S. Attorney General before taking over as Secretary of State. Now, his relationship even with uh, Alexander Hamilton, you know, if we think Jefferson and Hamilton had a tough relationship, and they did, Edmund Randolph's wasn't any easier. Edmund Randolph um, was not on the same page with Alexander Hamilton nor with uh, Henry Knox, the war secretary. Whereas uh, Hamilton and Knox urged immediate action with federal troops, Edmund Randolph favored negotiation with frontier rebels versus the use of military force. Randolph favored prosecution of rebels for failure in abiding to the whiskey tax, but the use of troops in Edmund Randolph's eyes should be issued only if the courts failed to prosecute those in violation of federal law. Well, you know, I can't uh, blame Edmund Randolph for wanting to um, come up with a different alternative solution. The bigger question is, do we have time on our side? You know, we only can be allotted but so much time, but let's see what happens. William Bradford, the new U.S. Attorney General, was an advocate of negotiation with the rebels, so Edmund Randolph does have a supporter. However, William Bradford supports the idea of preparing troops for military action, given the troops themselves need plenty of time to mobilize as units. Okay. Okay. So, um, yes, let's negotiate. Let's see if we can get uh, some further negotiation done. But we need to have our troops ready to go, because if we don't have them prepared, then how are they going to be ready to heed the call of duty when it's necessary? Now, August 6th, 1794, President Washington took a middle course path by giving Attorney General William Bradford, who uh, replaces Edmund Randolph in that uh, position. uh, President Washington gives uh, Attorney General William Bradford, head commander of a presidential uh, commission, including uh, federal and state commissioners on hand to negotiate with the rebels. August 7th, Federal Peace Commissioners began their westward journey while War Secretary Henry Knox issued orders to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and Virginia governors to call out 13,000 militiamen. 13,000, folks. That's a lot. So that's four states, 13,000. So we're looking at about uh, 3,250 militiamen at most, per each state, to come out and um, go westward to put down a um, potential uh, rebellion. August 14th, uh, Governor uh, Thomas Lee of Maryland called out his state militia. August 16th, Governor Henry Lee of Virginia called out his state militia despite personal dissent. Well, actually, no, there was no personal dissent from Virginia, It was in Pennsylvania where there was personal dissent. And who would have been that from? Governor Mifflin. But despite his personal dissent, Governor Mifflin does the right thing by calling out the Pennsylvania militia. Okay, so maybe now he's easing up and putting some personal feelings to the side. Or maybe Governor Mifflin's smart enough to know that if he doesn't abide by what Washington is instructing, that, um, that there will be further consequences. Perhaps uh, Pennsylvania's overall state of security could be at even greater risk. So thank heavens that, uh, that uh, Governor Mifflin, uh, despite personal dissent, has uh, agreed to uh, call out the Pennsylvania um, militia. William Bradford and Justice Jasper Yates from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, arrived at Parkinson's Ferry on August 14th, only to encounter from a distance a large gathering of armed men, burnings of stables and hay belonging to Bedford tax collector John Webster, whom had been forced to hand over his papers. Well, this arrival doesn't sound good, and maybe... Attorney General William Bradford and Justice Jasper Yates of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court are having to see for themselves firsthand just how big this mess is, and now they're beginning to wonder what is it going to take to restore order. They know that uh, Washington wants to bring troops, and they're not going to stop him, but they are hoping that they are hoping that there still could be a means of avoiding the inevitable. And that is to have the full nine yards or the whole nine yards of troops coming out. Tensions were high between insurgents and moderates. There's no joke about that. Militiamen inspired by Herman Husband's sermons, taking up arms, were well ready to were well ready to go in fighting against the US government. Moderates faced struggles in selling their objectives to mass numbers of delegates and militiamen whom are already bent on destruction. Yeah, it's like trying to talk to someone until you're blue in the face and not being able to get them to change their mind about something. And that's the struggle right there with many of these uh, militiamen. August 17th, federal commissioners wrote to Edmund Randolph advising him that there was not any hope of enforcing the whiskey tax. So even now, Edmund Randolph is having to face some tough reality. He's having to come to now to a realization that look, no matter how hard we try with negotiations, it's not going to be enough to bring it may not be hundred percent effective to where we can bring these dissidents back to um, back to a, uh, what do you call it a proper state of common sense. It, it's not going to be enough to bring them to a full-scale realization that, hey, violence is not the way out of, of resolving the problem. Yes, you can be opposed to something personally, but you don't have the power to overturn this. I mean, Edmund Randolph knows that, but it's just the fact that the bigger question is is restoring um, integrity along the frontier, getting these people to resubmit their allegiance. I mean, they haven't, you know, some of these men, if not some of them, a lot of them have talked about wanting to form their own separate entity of Pennsylvania. Uh, I probably told you all from the beginning that there was uh, talks about Westylvania being those five counties as their own separate entity that would be uh, a completely uh, separate from the rest of Pennsylvania. So there's just a lot of a um, lot of uncertainty at stake in a short amount of time to get this matter resolved because uh, Washington does not have time for, uh, it's not so much that he doesn't have time for chaos, he doesn't have time for uh, people whom are going to be non-compliant long-term. He just doesn't have time for it. But then again, as a, you know, as a general, I mean, being the general of the Continental Army, I don't think Washington would have had a lot of time to put up with crap in general. William Bradford uh, performed undercover intelligence operations where he advised In a letter to Washington what was lacking but yet remained accessible to those whom stood ready to take up arms against the federal government August 24th the War Council convened and Edmund Randolph was now forced into supporting Hamilton's use of force okay so it looks like everybody's now on a full page let's hope Was secrecy essential for coordinating a planned troop invasion into the Western Pennsylvania frontier? What do you all think? Was secrecy essential for coordinating a planned troop invasion into the Western Pennsylvania frontier? Uh, The answer is yes. Beyond 100% yes. Uh, the Washington administration was aware of what could go wrong if highly classified information being a plan of invasion got out to groups like Congress as a whole and the public at large, whom could voice more than just opposition? Well, if you're going to do more than just voice opposition, what else could you promote, folks? And we see it today, not just here in America, we see it in other parts of the world. How about means of inciting further acts of violence? And is it fair to say that there are those in Congress whom would be opposed in a heartbeat to Washington sending out um, troops? Yes, there would be. And then if the public gets a hold of it, you know, they're not, you know, I know during the American Revolutionary War there were uh, just shy of 40 newspapers, but, of course, in today's world, we've got newspapers left and right, and it's not just getting the newspaper in person, a hard copy of a newspaper, to read what has happened. You can get breaking news alerts, and you can read stuff online. But the last thing George Washington needs is, is people, and not just people, but the wrong people, getting their hands on sensitive information and uh, getting it to... Um, a printing shop where they, you know, will print the news, and then make Washington look like a bad guy when, in fact, he's doing when, in fact, he's going above and beyond to uh, keep America from falling into further disarray. So yes, it is very, very important that this planned uh, troop invasion into the western Pennsylvania frontier remain as classified as possible. Alexander Hamilton wrote Virginia Governor Henry Lee to keep his orders confidential, but to go about assigning them... Listen to this, folks. But Alexander Hamilton advised Governor Henry Lee to go about assigning his orders to a different date, being for a later one versus the actual one. Why a different date? Well, if he uses a different date, then he can be assured that he is not um, in danger, that he's not in danger of uh, doing something that others would say was um, an act of improper consent or was just an act of, um, of uh, improper uh, judgment. But if he is using a different date versus the actual one, it just gives him greater immunity from perhaps from being held liable. Uh, for something. So, in other words, these orders have to be kept confidential because if if not, then the biggest fear is information getting into the hands of the wrong person or wrong persons. That would also lead to um, that would also lead to greater uh, jeopardization, perhaps, of the young republic itself. Did a negotiation meeting take place around August 20th, 1794, in Pittsburgh? Yes. Uh, Men like Hugh Henry Brackenridge, Herman Husband, they were just some of the uh, many men from the federal and state levels present and working out an agreement. The federal commissioners threatened the other side with the use of armed troops into the frontier. They're threatening, folks. They're not making a promise, but they're threatening the other side with the use of armed troops into the frontier, but suggested that military force could be avoided if total acceptance was shown by everyone in the counties of Westmoreland, Bedford, Allegheny, Washington, and Fayette. The repeal of the tax law was not open for discussion. Okay, so forget it. We're not going to even waste our time. We, we know that you all don't like the, the tax law, but we're not going to sit here and try to um, repeal it. However, what is um, open for discussion is that the federal commissioners agreed to a possibility of the government hearing federal tax cases in local courts. The next few days after August 20th saw both sides come to an agreement. The president would stop from going forward and proceeding with new prosecutions relating to treason, including other crimes against the United States government from the Fourth Excise Survey Region or uh, District until July 1795. If the laws were followed, President Washington would issue a blanket pardon for all crimes uh, committed recently by multiple persons or multiple uh, individuals. Parkinson's uh, Ferry Committee, there was um, a group of 60. They had to agree without opposition in refraining from uh, preventing operation of of tax law, along with um, formally renouncing violence against U.S. officers and lawful citizens. August 23rd of of 1794, negotiations with uh, federal uh, commissioners ended. But William Bradford, uh, the Attorney General, continued exercising concerns of fear given the government itself ought to avoid a showdown until the regular army was fully assembled to staying in the region for protecting tax officers. We're not leaving anything on the table. And I think that's smart. Got a lot to still uh, be concerned about. August 28th, Mr. Brackenridge and the rest of the negotiating committee met again with Parkinson's uh, Ferry Committee of 60 to report on talks with Federal Commission at the town of Brownsville, which became the first place in expressing opposition to the whiskey tax. Mr. Brackenridge issued multiple copies of a conference committee's report at Brownsville to people whom were being asked to give uh, mass pardons to tax collectors, law-abiding citizens. Those in attendance viewed moderates and conference committee members with suspicion. That probably doesn't come as a surprise, especially when any federal official, or um, regardless of his rank, is going to be automatically seen as a direct threat. Mr. Brackenridge spoke and supported committee members whom spoke before him and provided a stern lecture towards the rebels about what would happen if they didn't adhere to the safety guidelines brought under amnesty condition. Apparently this speech of Mr. Brackenridge's would be the last piece of solid sound advice to rebel militiamen. The way I see it is this, um, this might sound crazy, but I'm going to make a comparison of it. I remember this movie from years ago. It came out in the late 1980s. It was called The War of the Roses. Many of you all probably remember it, most of you older uh, grown-ups. It was with Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito. The Roses lived in this nice home, but yet Mrs. Rose wanted to go back to work, and um, Mr. Rose got a little bit jealous of her, for various reasons, and he allowed his jealousy to take over. Long story short of it was that in the end, um, Danny DeVito, playing Michael Douglas's lawyer, he says to um, Oliver, that's who Michael Douglas plays, he's like, you know, Oliver, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to give this up. And and Douglas's response was, now what do you mean, um, give it up? I mean, whose side are you on? He's like, you know, Oliver, I respect you, but you're not going to win this uh, battle. There are plenty of other homes you can uh, find. There are other women you could date, but just let your wife have the house. And he's like, you know, this isn't fair. And he's like, Oliver, there are different degrees of losing. How bad do you want to lose? So, in this case here, with uh, Mr. Brackenridge, he's basically trying to tell these rebels, look, this is about as good of a proposal as there's going to be with uh, resolution. But if you don't adhere to the safety guidelines that are being brought before you, don't expect any of us to come bail you out. In other words, how bad do you all want to lose? Give it up. You're not going to be able to repeal this federal tax law. Sure, you can be opposed to it, but you're going to have to. Uh, but you, but you don't have the power yourself to repeal it. But we are giving you um, a means of um, re-swearing your um, allegiance, that is your allegiance to America, and that you will be a law-abiding citizen. So in other words, this is about as good as it's going to get. In other words, for these um, men along the frontier, how bad are they willing to risk losing? If they're not careful, they could lose it all. So it's one thing to lose, But there are different degrees of losing. Well, it turns out that 34 voted in favor of submitting to the federal government. 23 didn't. Three abstained. The good news is that uh, that this uh, motion did go through despite some opposition. September 11th, 1794 required men 18 and older to sign an oath of allegiance to federal law. Those whom signed by September 11th, and gosh, when I think of September 11th, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we all think of September 11th, 2001, but to think something important like what we're going to be learning now from September 11th, 1794, does have some significant uh, meaning. So September 11th, 1794, we're uh, being asked to, uh, to oversee that men 18 and older sign an oath of allegiance to the federal law, Those whom signed by September 11th um, and didn't show signs of resistance could be assured mass pardons for past crimes, but those whom did not sign the Allegiance Oath were considered fair game for arrest by federal troops. September 12th, 1794, troops from New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia marched west. The right wing from the northern states gathered in central Pennsylvania at Carlisle, The southern left wing gathered at Fort Cumberland in Maryland. President Washington and Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton joined the army in Carlisle. The journey west to the frontier in Forks of the Ohio. September 1794 would mark the final time that Washington would ever journey west. And wouldn't it be fair to say that maybe by journeying west he might be seeing some of his property holdings for the final time? Yes. Could he be seeing properties in person that he had, well, that he had not seen in some time until until um what's going to be lying in store here uh pretty soon? Yes. Is it fair to say that this mission of going west ought to be f- portrayed as um I don't know if I should say victory or death, because this has to be a mission for victory. This is a a mission of restoring um, order, but also restoring um, and preserving national security on the domestic front. For Washington, this is about making sure that America's young republic will survive long term, not just for the current generation that's living under the young republic, but for future generations. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment. When I'm on the air again next, we're gonna start, um, we're gonna start with a two-part series on, um, on this uh, next uh, piece that's gonna be called The General Goes West. So we've got a two-part series that we'll be starting when I'm on the air again next, but I will say that we are getting pretty much towards the end. But in order to um, get the final results, out of this we have to learn about the um, about the general going west not just the general but the army going west and whether or not there will be any bloodshed or not I would hope that there would not be a mass war but at the same time Washington would want to make it known that the government is serious about putting down law and order and making sure that those whom are causing trouble along the frontier can resubmit their um, allegiance to America, not just to one entity, but to America as a whole. Well, thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you guys, and uh, I want to say uh, thank you to those whom are listening in Japan. I just picked up uh, my 63rd Nation the other day, and it was uh, Japan, so I'm glad to have uh, people from Japan listening to my uh, podcasts. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of nations around the world listening, Uh, but thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, uh, I don't know where I would be, so no matter where you are, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world whom are listening, thank you for being ardent listeners, and thank you for all that you have done to help me get where I'm at today. So um, I look forward to being back on the air next time, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.